0: In 1957, Forbes magazine called him the richest man alive. I'm referring to J. Paul Getty, the industrialist, tycoon of Getty oil. In 1966, the Guinness Book of World Records said that he was the uh, the richest private citizen in all the world worth just over a billion dollars, 1966. Getty said my formula for success is rather simple. I rise early, work late, and strike oil. (laughs) But in 1976, J. Paul Getty died. And if you were to look at the richest people today, he's not even on the list. Who's the richest person in the world today? Well, as of June 2016, it's Bill Gates, age 62, with over 83 billion dollars. And that was a few days ago, so I'm sure he's got more. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is next in the the, uh, low 80s. Amancio Ortega, a Spanish tycoon in the clothing business, is in the 80s. Warren Buffett, 77 billion. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook fame, and by the way, the youngest in all of this list, over $71 billion. You can't conceive of it, can you? Imagine if you were one of Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates' children, (laughs) born into that family. They have three, Jennifer is 20, Rory 17, Phoebe 14. But in an interview, a TEDS interview in 2014, Bill and Melinda said that we're not going to dump all of our money on our kids. We don't want to ruin them. And they're all right with that. Our well over $70 billion is going to go into the family charitable trust, which is designed to help the poor in the world. Then he went on to say, we want to make sure that our kids receive an excellent education, that they have a sense of their own ability, that their work or their lives matter, that they're important. And then he went on to say this. He said, we want to strike a balance so that our kids have the freedom to do anything. But not to shower a lot of money on them so that they can go out and do nothing. I thought that was a pretty good statement. But reading in between the lines, he said, we're not going to give our kids all of our money. We're going to strike a balance and give them enough money so so that they can do anything is what he said. He said, uh, we want to make sure that we're not dumping all of our money on them. How much are they going to dump on their kids? You know, A few, few millions still would be pretty nice. Oh, I don't know how much it is, but I laud them for their desire not to ruin their kids with wealth. But imagine if the gates said, we are going to go to China and adopt two children and if word got out in that orphanage that two of them would be adopted by the richest people in the world what do you think they would do imagine all of that well I simply want to make it known to you that if you are a Christian you are born again and you've been born rich I mean you've been born rich and if you cannot conceive of the billions of dollars that the gates have, we have a problem conceiving of the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And we want to talk a little bit about that wealth. Begin to talk about that wealth. Because there's no way that you can exhaust this subject. There's no way you can plummet its debts but we are rich in Christ. As you turn to the book of Ephesians, you'll notice, and we've already gone over the introduction, it's written by the Apostle Paul, to the saints, that's the common believer. That's the people of God. They're not always saintly, but they're called to be set apart. And they are believers in Christ. Therefore, they desire to be faithful in Christ. To them is given the dual blessing of grace and peace. Grace is the foundation. Peace is the result. And it comes both from the Father and the Son, which, by the way, in the construction of the original language, means that these are both the same individual. It is from the Father, yes, even the Lord Jesus, who is also God. But notice our riches. We're told in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms or in heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul even uses the word rich, or it's translated into our NIV translations, rich, in chapter 1 verse 7 we have the riches of God's grace in chapter 1 and verse 18 if you want to follow along we have the riches of his glorious inheritance chapter 2 verse 4 talks about the riches of his mercy and in that same chapter chapter 2 and verse 7 his riches are incomparable that is we cannot compare them to anything else. They are boundless, chapter 3, verse 8, that is the riches of God's grace to us, boundless, limitless, and in chapter 3, in verse 16, in what is a great prayer, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. They're boundless, they're glorious, they're incomparable. They're the riches of God. And I can't even begin to comprehend them. But they're yours. If you're a believer, you are rich. You say, but yeah, pastor, you know, there's a big difference. (laughs) The riches of the gates, you know, that's their checkbook. That's material riches. That's money. You're talking about spiritual riches. My dear friend, spiritual riches are far more valuable than money. There wasn't a big amen on that one. Had to think about that for a moment well, I'd like to be blessed with a little bit of material riches yeah I understand that and we need some and God knows we need some and he provides what we need but in the end riches sprout wings and fly away they're temporal but the spiritual blessings in Christ are eternal and we never lose them once you're made rich in Christ, you never lose your riches. Oh, I tell you, we are rich. By the way, it's interesting to note that Ephesus, this major city in Asia Minor in that day, the uh, greatest city on the coast, a great commercial city, was also a very rich city. Nestled on the sloping hills of Pion and Carissus. It was considered to be the bank of Asia. For in that great temple that dwelt there in Ephesus, the temple of Diana or Artemis, they held great treasures of art, some of the best works of art in the world at that time, as well as money from all over the area was placed in this temple. And like a bank, it made this city wealthy. Also today, if you go to visit Ephesus, They will take you to the hills on the or the houses on the terrace. You're walking through this street of wonderful ancient ruins, and then you've got to pay a little extra to go in the rich district, but that's exactly what it was. Terraced houses on the hill where they've uncovered unbelievable mosaic floors from the exact time of when the apostle Paul was there. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus, he said, tell those who are rich in this world's goods, to be rich in good works. He said you can enjoy your riches materially, but make sure that you share your riches materially, which is exactly what the gates are doing. I find that amazing that when we talk about all the riches that we have in Christ, it's in the backdrop of a very wealthy city in that day. And then Paul starts out in verse 3. I'm going to read from verse 3 through verse 14. Because this is all one sentence in the original. I won't quite read it like one sentence. We have about five sentences in our English translations. But in the original, this is one sentence. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places "...with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestinated us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves." In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their ultimate fulfillment. That is... To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession and all of this to the praise of his glory. And I can only say, wow, and amen. Now we're going to begin to unpack this, and it's going to take a while. I hope you see this as a wonderful poem of praise. It pours forth in this one continuous stream of words where Paul neither takes breath nor pause for punctuation. He is so taken on the goodness and greatness of God and the blessings that he's given to us that this turns into a wonderful eulogy. In fact, that's what the word blessed is. You see it in verse 3, chapter 1? Blessing. It is the Greek word eulageo, where we get the English word eulogy. The English is Taken so many words from the Greek and just invented English words, and this is one of them eulogy, blessing. It means to say something good about someone. And this is God's eulogy, not that he's dead, but that Paul is simply praising him for all of his greatness. Another Christian scholar said this sounds a whole lot like the creeds, the benedictions that were often said in Jewish homes and in Jewish synagogues. And maybe Paul is quoting from an ancient Christian creed as he goes through these amazing blessings. Now look at verse 3 for a moment. It says that we have been given every spiritual blessing. Notice, first of all, the nature of the blessing. They are spiritual. In fact, it could be translated like this. We have been given every blessing of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. So the blessings are spiritual because they come from God the Spirit. And they are purchased through God the Son. And they are applied by God the Spirit. So he has given to us every blessing that the Spirit offers. That is, every conceivable blessing. Nothing is held back. So the nature of the blessing is spiritual. The scope of the blessing is inconceivable. It's every possible blessing. The scope is as broad as God himself. That's why it just kind of blows your mind. Have you ever tried to study after a genius? And after, oh, for me, about 10 or 15 seconds, my mind just goes poof. I can't follow them anymore. And they take so many things for granted that they know, that they think we should know, and it's mind-boggling. If you want to expand your mind, study the nature of of the infinite God. You'll never be able to study everything about God but in the process you'll expand your mind. Because just trying to get your puny finite mind around the infinite God must stretch you and that's good. So the nature of the blessing is spiritual, the scope of the blessing is nothing withheld, it's every blessing. And notice the place of the blessing Every spiritual blessing, what are the last two words of verse 3? In Christ. You say, Pastor, it depends on your translation. That's true. So according to my translation, the last two words, in Christ. Where do I get these blessings in Christ? There's a horrible tragedy that has taken place in the islands, in the southeast, and in Florida. People have lost everything. And they've been told to go to certain storm centers or provision centers, and there they can get water and food and shelter for sleeping. And So if someone says, now, you've lost everything. That's right. You have nothing. That's right. I want you to know that everything you need has been provided for you. And it's in the shelter. And the person says, okay, great. I'm going to stay here but I want those blessings. And they said, no, 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 the blessings aren't coming here. You've got to go to the shelter. You've got to be in the shelter. I don't want to go in the shelter. Well, you make the decision, but that's where the blessings are. There is no blessing apart from Jesus Christ. All of them are in Christ. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are placed in Christ. What's in Christ? All the blessings. You get it? Well, I would like to have the blessings without Christ. It doesn't work that way. Sorry. Oh, God does give some amazing blessings to everyone in the world. It's called common grace. But if you want every spiritual blessing, you've got to get in Christ because that's where they are. You were born in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Adam, all die. Some of you don't know that. You're still in Adam. You think like an Adamite. You think like a person of this world. That's all you know. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're placing Christ and everything changes. By the way, it says in verse 3 that these blessings are found in the heavenly realms. That is, in the spiritual realities. We often live in the earthlies. We need to learn how to live in the heavenlies. And it's not speaking so much about a place, it's speaking about where Christ is. It's the spiritual dimension, it's the spiritual reality of the person of Christ. Remember last week we said a good way to look at the book of Ephesians would be to think of these three words, sit, walk, stand, remember that? Where did we get the word sit? Chapter 2, verse 6 says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There it is again. So it's talking about spiritual realities. When you get to chapter six, it talks about in the heavenly realms, we're fighting with principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. So it's not just the place where there's blessing, it's the reality of the spiritual behind the earthly. And Christ is in that spiritual realm, and we have been seated with him, and we have access to all of these amazing blessings. You see, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God, the children of God. That's the wonderful gospel. And N.T. is right when he says any picture of God that doesn't have Jesus at the very center is a distortion and a downright fabrication. This in Christ is repeated about 27 times in the book of Ephesians, if my count is right. And so time and time again, we're told that that's where the blessing is. Now, what's the purpose for the blessing? Well, did you know, as we were reading from verse 3 through 14, did you hear the repeated word praise? It starts out with praise in verse 3. Praise is mentioned in verse 6. Praise is mentioned again in verse 12. And then in the last verse, verse 14, praise is mentioned. The word praise is found four different times in what is the equivalent of one verse in the original language. But it's found nowhere else. In the epistle. The emphasis has to be then that this is the great theme and the grand goal and the ultimate purpose of getting these blessings. Why does God bless us with all these blessings? It's to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his kindness. To the praise of his grace. To the praise of his goodness. To the praise of his love. In other words, Ephesians starts out with this unbelievable, remarkable picture of God so that we would be turned into grateful people of praise. And if I'm not praising, it's because I don't have this picture of God in my purview. I don't realize what he's done in all of his blessings. By the way, did you notice that this is Trinitarian in its structure? Much in the book of Ephesians indeed is Trinitarian. In fact, in verse 3, notice, praise comes from God the Father and God the Son, and every blessing is given to us by God the Spirit. All the blessings come from the Spirit. In this section of Scripture, we're going to talk about the Father planning our redemption. That's kind of a focus today. And then we're going to talk about the Son performing or accomplishing our salvation. And then we're going to talk about the Spirit applying our salvation. So it's the Father planning, and it's the Son performing, and it's the Spirit applying. As it says in verse 13, He is the seal. In verse 14, He is the guarantee of our salvation. The Trinity is at work. This seems to be a nod or or at least similar to the ancient creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed that take us all the way back to right after the first century. Christians have been acknowledging the Trinitarian work of the one true God. So we could put it this way, every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God the Father, and they're found in Jesus the Son. Every blessing comes from the Holy Spirit, given to us by God the Father, and it's found in Christ the Son. So let's begin to look at some of these blessings. You know, there is some benefit in spending years in the book of Ephesians, and some pastors. Some scholars have done that. They take every word and then spend weeks looking at it all throughout the Bible. And I'm tempted to do that because these words are so big. But then sometimes you lose the forest because of the trees. So I hope to give us something of a good view of what God is doing without going so slow that we forget where we are. So what are these spiritual blessings? After mentioning that we have all of them, He begins to unfold some of them. And the first one I want to mention is the fact that he has chosen us. Or that might be, we would refer to that as the doctrine of election. Verse 4, for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Now, this is a doctrine that has caused all kinds of controversy. It is a football that is being kicked around time and time again. But this is where Paul starts, before the beginning of creation, before the beginning of time. The book of the Revelation in chapter 13 verse 8 says the lamb was slain from the creation or foundation of the world. And so now we hear that have this mysterious Doctrine of election. Let me quote to you from Warren Worsby. I could quote to you from Calvin, but you would say, Yeah, of course, Calvin believes in that. I would take one of the other reformers and you would say, Yeah, but I'm not from that tradition. We'll take Warren Worsby from our own tradition, one of the most beloved teachers. He says, This is a marvelous doctrine, this doctrine of election that salvation begins with God and not with man, all Christians must agree. It is simply revealed in Scripture. The doctrine has confused some and confounded others. But I want you to know that this mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this lifetime. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true. Both are essential. And it's impossible to truly understand them. To one of my favorite theologians, John Stott, we have these words, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should be aware of this and not try. <laughs> not try to systemize it too precisely or too rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. Now, I know some of you don't like the doctrine, so you deny it. Interesting. Which one of the two natures of Christ would you like to deny, his deity or his humanity? Should we take a vote? How many would like to deny his deity? How many would like to deny his humanity? Well, you can't put those together, can you? Is your mind intelligent enough to get rid of the mystery? No, you say. And you're going to believe them both? Good, I say. (laughs) You know where I'm going. And what about who wrote the Bible? Was it God or man? The answer is yes. No, 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 no. It's got to be either God's book or man's book. It can't be both because in my puny mind, I ah, there's the problem. You think you've got to understand the mystery before you believe it. About the Trinity, the very thing we're talking about this morning. God is one, manifested himself in three people. The Jehovah Witnesses say they can't be. You've got you've to have one or the other. You can't have both. And we say, no, you can Because God's infinite. And that's what he's revealed in Scripture. So come to this doctrine with that same perspective. I don't understand it, but it's revealed there. And for what purpose? To the praise of his glory. And for my, get this, spiritual blessing. Eric Alexander is a wonderful pastor from Scotland, a dear man. I think he's retired now. And he has been the mentor and pastor for many pastors whose names we know on this side of the pond. Although maybe you've not heard of Eric Alexander. But in talking about the doctrine of election, he says this, and I love this. He says it's not a bomb to be dropped upon us. It's not a banner to be waved by us, but it is a bastion in which we run to find safety. Not a bomb to be dropped and debated. Not fodder for arguments and splits. It is designed for our comfort. And the one who is proud of his election understands nothing. Because one of the things that this teaching of chosen before the foundation of the world should do to us is make us humble. The poet put it this way, chosen not, in good, chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love. How much I owe. It's all the work of God's grace. And he does it so that in no way does he offend, eliminate, defile our free responsibility. Do we honestly believe when we trust Christ? Yeah, that's what it says in verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, you believed. And then you were sealed. Sealed. So I'm not saved when God chooses me and I'm not even saved when Christ died on the cross. I'm not saved until the Spirit convicts me of sin and I embrace the message of the gospel and then all the work of God catches up with me in time. A mystery to be sure. But aren't you glad you worship a God who still has some mystery to him? If you could figure out everything about God, God would not be God. And so this is one of those things that we must just embrace. Well, there must have been some reason he chose me. Chosen not for good in you. The book of Deuteronomy helps us out. Very few of us have any problem with Israel being chosen. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the question is asked, well, God, why did you choose Israel? Was was it because they were great in number? He said, no, you were the smallest of all people. The Lord did not set his affection upon you or choose you because you were more numerous than others, because you were the fewest, but he chose you because he loved you. The reason is in God, and it's not in us. I don't understand it, but the design of such a teaching is to give us comfort of soul. And study the word that's found over and over again. We're called the elect of God. By the way, I don't think the Bible teaches anywhere that people are predestined to hell. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. But when all is said and done, the glory of our salvation goes to the God who by his grace before the foundation of the world set his love upon us. And by the way, if his choice is rooted in eternity, it will last for eternity. God always puts the finishing touches on the work he begins. He who began the good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's no violation of human responsibility, but there ought to be great comfort and encouragement that his grace has found me. And notice, we weren't chosen because we were holy, we were chosen to be holy. That's the purpose and the goal, holy and blameless in his sight. We'll talk more about that later, but that's the goal of us becoming the children of God. Well, then we jump out of the pan and into the fire in verse 5 because we've got the word predestined. (laughs) Wow, I don't like that word. Well, I think you will because it's only found five times in the New Testament. And every time it's found, it's referring to one who's already a believer. Again, quoting Warren Worsby, it seems as though this idea of predestination has more to do with what God, where God places us, what happens to us after we are believers. It's a family word. And here it says he's predestinated us to be adopted as his son. Now, if you go to Romans chapter 8, and we don't have time to do that, but Romans chapter 8 says something very interesting. It says, all things, verse 28, all things work together for to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. What's his purpose? The very next two verses. For it says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son." A lot of people like to quote verse 28. They don't realize it's impossible to have verse 28 without verse 29 and 30. But what does the word there say? We are predestined. Once we are believers, we are predestined to be like Jesus. That's why you can't lose your salvation. Once you are truly saved, God has predetermined he's going to adopt you as his child and make you like Jesus. And when God plans to do something, you better believe it will be done. Who will stay his hand who will stop him from his work or say to God, what in the world are you doing? Daniel chapter 4, no one. So if you are a believer, God has determined to adopt you as his son. That has to do, as your son, and it refers to men and women. It's just that the son was given the right of the inheritance and all of the privileges as the next in line. We've been adopted in God's sight. He has predestined us to be like Jesus. I remember Paul Van Gorder from the radio Bible class put it this way. God is so pleased with his son, Jesus. He wants to populate eternity with people just like him. So when you get saved, he says, I'm going to make you like my son. You know what that involves? Testings, trials, (laughs) discipline, growth, tears, but joy. And that's the plan of God to adopt you. Galatians chapter 4 has a wonderful text on adoption. I won't read the whole thing, but verse 4, Galatians 4, we quote it every Christmas. To the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, purpose statement, we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are his son, God has sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts. And the spirit of Jesus cries in our heart, Abba, Father. Hey, I mean, this is good stuff. I'm sorry I can't make it more engaging. And I'm sorry I can't awaken you to the reality of this. As some of you, maybe it just is passing by. Maybe you're not a believer yet, and that's why it doesn't excite you. But the Trinity is here. God wants you to be his son, and your heart cries out, I'm yours, Abba. And then there's one final thing I want to mention in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go back there. And it says in verse 6 that we have been graced by his grace. He has begraced us to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has freely graced us with in the one he loves. Or as some translations put it, that we are now accepted in the beloved to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us acceptable to God. You see, there was nothing in you that would make you acceptable to God, but when you are in Christ, now you're acceptable. Think with me. you got to be perfect to get into heaven, and none of us are. So how do we become perfect? We get in Christ, the perfect one. And so now we're accepted into heaven in Christ. His perfection covers us. And so the Father's choice marks us out and the death of Christ provides for us redemption and forgiveness, as we'll see next week. But it's the Holy Spirit who convicts and draws us and we believe. And when we do, we are saved, never to be lost. We become his adopted children right then and every spiritual blessing is ours because we are in the place of blessing. Jesus All of this should give you a sense of humility and gratitude, a new sense of dignity, because your identity should not be based on your abilities. You'll lose them someday. On your intellect, believe me, whatever you have will erode. (laughs) On your position at work, you'll lose that job someday. Let your identity be found in Christ. And that brings security. And it provides this wonderful response of praise. You say, I'm so insignificant. I'm a meaningless speck in the universe. Yeah, but God chose you from before eternity and he saved you by his grace in Christ and he put his spirit in you and put your smaller story in this larger story of God and the universe, and you've got to respond with praise. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twined those ties which naught can sever For I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. So what should I do? Praise him, always and forever. Heavenly Father, we are lost in wonder, love, and praise. I hardly know what to say, except thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Thank you, Lord, for making us whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. May I spend every day of my life learning more about your greatness, that I might live for your glory and your praise.